it was from a young woman in Ohio who said what the way in which you people, you know, our parents think about bills, taxes, money, the way in which that weighs on you and your shoulders. That's the way we think about living and dying. So when we think about our tax bill or about recession, they think about living and dying. I probed more and um, they, uh, I heard not just from this one woman, but I heard it reflected in you know, dozens of other places that every time they go into a classroom, and I, I still think this is happening, even though this, might, this conversation might have been 2018, they have to case the room, see where the door is, right? See, you know, see where the quickest entry exit point is um, and understand that they're not safe. In a place where we always felt safe. Hi, I'm Sandy Fowler, and you're listening to Mighty Parenting, a podcast where we explore parenting in a way that helps us and our kids find more happiness and fosters emotional wellness, even while solving problems with our teens and young adults. We learn through advice and stories from experts and other parents, and I'm so glad you've joined us. So welcome to Mighty Parenting, where we have real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults in today's world. Life with teens isn't always excitement and fun. Sometimes we have to be the parent, and that can include taking away a cell phone. But taking away a phone causes problems because then we can't communicate with our kids when they're at school or practice, or if they're at home and we're out, since most of us don't have landlines anymore. That problem goes away with our sponsor, Trumi. Trumi has a completely flexible smartphone, so you can restrict your teen's phone so it can't do anything but call and text. And you can even list the numbers that they're able to call and text with. So you can just list your numbers and that way you can communicate with them even when you've essentially taken away their phone. When they're ready for more phone freedom, simply give them the pieces you know they're ready for. You can learn more at Trimmy.com using the code MIGHTYPARENTING, all in caps. You'll get $50 off your phone order. And if you want more of my thoughts on how you can use Trumi in your parenting, just send me an email at connectinmightyparenting.com and I will be happy to share my thoughts and tips. This episode is sponsored by Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, IBME. We hear people talking about mindfulness, but why would we want our kids to learn how to pay attention to the present moment with kindness and curiosity? Well, research has shown the benefits of mindfulness to include increased self-awareness, improved focus and impulse control, decreased stress and anxiety, skillful response to difficult emotions, and increased empathy. And research on the impact of IBME retreats shows teens experience increased self-compassion and life satisfaction, as well as decreased rumination and reactivity following their retreat. Basically, it's what we strive for at Mighty Parenting, emotional wellness and greater contentment for our kids. IBME has many programs and opportunities for our teens and young adults, and even parents, to learn and practice mindfulness. Just visit ibme.com slash mightyparenting to see what's available. And while you're there, be sure to enter your email to stay updated on new offerings. Today, I'm chatting with John Delavolpe. John is the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics, where he has led the institution's polling initiatives on understanding American youth since 2000. He is also the author of the book Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. 
And I actually heard John speak at the Kevin Song Conference on Suicide several years ago. The information he shared, I have to admit, when they said a pollster is going to talk to us, I kind of went, what? And then the information blew me away. It was so interesting. And then I took it home and it started some amazing conversations with my girls. So you today, Mighty Parents, will be getting that information. And John, thank you so much for joining us on Mighty Parenting. I'm glad to have you here. I am so happy to be here. Thank you very much, Sandy. So, John, you've been interviewing Gen Z for many, many years now. Throughout those interviews, what really struck you? So, um, you're right. It's been it's been 21 years since I've been interviewing young Americans. So now uh, I have interviewed thousands and thousands of, of millennials who. I kind of think roughly or now between the ages of, you know, 26 or so, mid-20s, late-20s to 40. And, and over, obviously over the last, you know, five, six years, been focused on the younger cohort of, uh, of Gen Z, young people somewhere between the ages of like 10 and 25. And I spent a lot of time every summer. I have many, many hats, one of which is my company, Social Sphere, but also for 21 years now, I've been running this project at Harvard. So every summer I've got some more time and I tend to travel around the country asking young people, whether they're high schoolers or college students or graduates or, or, or potential students or not, the same series of questions. And in the, in the summer of 2017, I began to be surprised for the first time at what I was hearing. In other words, I'd ask, questions like, uh, you know, are you hopeful or optimistic about the future? Are you, are you, um, what's the one thing that we older people should understand about your generation? What are the things that kind of connect all of us as Americans and all of you as a member of this cohort? And it was in that summer of 2017 that I began to hear messages of fear of, of, of uh, hopelessness, of pessimism. Um, and it, I, was, I was just quite struck by that. Um, literally, you know, just a couple of years earlier, I could be anywhere. I remember specifically talking to very, very disadvantaged folks in Memphis, Tennessee. Yet, despite the difficult personal circumstances they had, they were still so optimistic about the country and the future, even and their ability to, to get ahead if they put in the hard work. And I wasn't feeling that, I wasn't hearing that in 2017. And for the first time, as I said, I, I really began to kind of rethink how I'm, I'm approaching my job and how um, young people might be thinking about, frankly, the, frankly, the country. And, um, and as 2017 summer led to the fall, to the spring, we just had a series of events frankly, that just added to the fear, added to the stress and added to the anxiety that young people were already very um, open sharing. You know, um, I recognize that it's never been easy to be a young person or an adolescent. Social media makes it that much harder. But Sandy, what I recognize is the role that public affairs, public events and politics were playing was also adding just a level of toxicity into the atmosphere that was just unhelpful and, and uh, harmful. It's interesting 
to me that you saw such a shift in, in the overall perception of kids, because I, I think we tend to think of our young people as generally being optimistic. That's the age where you believe you can go out and you can conquer the world. You can change the world. You can make a difference. As you talk to them about, about this fear, what did they, what did they have to say? What is so scary for them? So I think there's, there's a couple different factors here. One of which is, and I don't necessarily know the answer to this, but one question that I have is, is it that the older brothers and sisters of, of Gen Z, those millennials were just as fearful, but not as comfortable sharing it? I don't know, right? That could be, could very well be the case. Um, or was there something new that was creating, you know, increased fear and increased anxiety? And again, my background as a pollster, like, you know, what business do I have talking to young people about their mental health and their fears and concerns and psychology? But I felt like I couldn't have a conversation about the rest of the topics on my discussion guide, right? Whether it's how to improve public education or how do we think about the climate or any of these other more political issues that I want to deal with until I could understand the context of the moment they're living in a few things. One of which is I think about the relative... Um, relative uh, tranquility or calmness, um, assuredness that young people, um, many young people felt from eight years of uh, Barack Obama's president. Not to say that everyone loved him, not to say that he was the, um, the greatest president of all time, but there was a sense of stability that existed. Um, and then in 2017, whether you love him or whether you hate him, things change radically with um, with President Trump in all ways. Um, one way in particular was when you think about the breaking news alerts that you and I might get on our phone, okay? Um, someone who has, you know, um, experience can kind of flip through those and, and try to figure out what's important, what's not important, what we need to look at. But younger people don't have that context. So every time they see a breaking alert, breaking news alert, they think that there's something to be kind of concerned about. And we actually found that in polling. You know, the more times people were checking their phones and looking at the breaking news, the more anxious and, and fearful they were. So the role of media and information and the ability to put this into context is one thing I think that led to this anxiety and fear one. The other things are when when you, when younger people or anyone really just looked at the first, you know, five or six months or so of Washington, of the presidential administration, I'm talking to them in June, you know, by June, there was already a debate whether or not um, how many people stood at the inauguration. You know, Steve Bannon was on the Security Council. There was, we the uh, United States pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. They um, were uh, talking about or actually building borders. People were refused entry into this country based upon the religion or the country that they came from. You know, these are very significant events in the lives of young people without context. And, um, and you know, that was in June. And just a couple of months later, you know, uh, they witnessed the atrocities of people their age and other people, you know, marching with tiki torches um, in Charlottesville. Don't forget that happened that summer, August, I think of 2017. Um, by the way, right in October, 
uh, early October, there was the, uh, you know, the, the mass shooting at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. So, you know, so again, you're dealing with adolescents who already have challenges, right? Um, and by the way, I don't want to even, I don't want to um, underestimate though that even those traditional challenges, I think are more challenging than the ones that my generation Gen X had to deal with, you know, uh, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, opioids, suicide, depression, they're dealing with racism, they're dealing with those issues personally. And then on top of that, we're adding the kind of the, the chaos of, uh, of Washington, DC. It was very, very uh, a, a, a difficult time. Um, so I was essentially every conversation, every place I went to, I couldn't not hear, could not not hear those things to the point where, frankly, it was almost distracting um, to the rest of the agenda because I couldn't get to like the agenda because I needed to hear, you know, uh, how people were kind of getting on. Um, well, and it's interesting what you were saying there, because I think that translates into our households is as parents, you know, parents talk to me and they're like, I'm having trouble getting my kid to do this, or we're, you know, fighting about college apps or can't get them to, to just do things they used to do, take care of chores, this, that. And I think that we have the same problem. If we can't deal with their fears and help them get perspective and manage and walk through that, how can we expect them to look at something else. Fear is a powerful emotion. And when we don't feel safe as a human being, our brain starts to shut down and we go into a fight or flight. We start protecting ourselves and just doing the things that we need to do for survival. So the more fearful we are, the less functional I think our kids are going to be. So I think that's something as parents, we need to understand and address. And you mentioned something else you, a couple of times you've talked about, you know, these people are young. They've seen huge changes and some scary things without the context, without the life experience that we have. We've had a few guests who've talked about this idea in passing of our kids don't know that everything's going to be okay. They have not lived enough to see that things wax and wane and things pop up and there can be war and politics and all of this, and we will get through it. We will move forward. Life will be okay. And as parents, we forget that because we have that perspective. We have all these years behind us. We have all of that. And a lot of times I think we tend to just say, well, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it, you know, and, and sort of push them to move forward. So I think that's a, a great parallel to what you ran into with your interviews is well, we can't even get past these fears to think about education and other things that are happening in the world that you want them to think about. Just like we can't get past these fears to get them to do what we think they need to do and what we want them to think about. I think your parallel, Sandy, with like the college applications is, is, is terrific, right? We're not afraid uh, oftentimes as parents to say, you know what, it's going to work out, right? Don't I, there's so many times I remember coming home late from a trip with um, with one of my three children still studying, you know, at some hour they should be sleeping. And I said, you know, uh, 
I said, what, what are we going to sleep in? She goes, you know, what I hear, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to fail? I said, no, you're going to get like an A or an A minus or whatever it is. I know you're prepared. You know, let's, um, let's, let's kind of shut it down. We can offer that per kind of perspective, but I think we need to have a similar perspective in talking about politics. Right. Um, and, and, and those sorts of things. And one of the moments from that conference that um, that we attended together a couple of years ago was, again, I was addressing for the first time, you know, a group of, of, of parents and social workers and mental health professionals, et cetera, on, on what I was seeing from young people. And I had to talk about politics and. And I remember coming off the stage and kind of sheepishly kind of apologizing for bringing kind of politics up. And um, there was someone who pulled me aside. She goes, don't ever apologize. We need to have a conversation. You need to tell us that politics is something that is creating stress and fear, because if you don't, we don't address it. It just is going to get worse, right? So just like all of those other things, we're not afraid to talk about applications, you know, for school, but we are afraid to talk about other important things in, you know, the, the traditional family dynamic. Um, and I think that's unhelpful and unhealthy. And I think politics fits um, into that same uh, category right now. And as parents, we're going to have to accept their kids may not have the same political opinions we do. So back to breaking news, parents. breaking news, they don't breaking right. news, they don't, right? <laughs> well, we're going to go there, right? So yeah, and I just want to remind us mighty parents, this is the time to practice all the tools we talk about here. We need to listen. We need to respect them. We need to let them think it through. Even if we can see with all of our experience that their thought process behind their opinion is terrible, it's their opinion. Number one, they're entitled to it. And number two, if we don't let them have it and think it through, they can never come to realize that the reasoning they have right now is terrible. And they might come up with better reasoning and still have the same opinion. So we just, we have to take that. So let's, let's go to a couple of these other things. You said that one of the questions you ask is what did the older generation need to know? What is it when you talk to our kids, we're talking our current teens and 20 somethings, what is it that they say we need to know? A couple of things, one of which, again, is one of the most striking comments I've ever heard in 20 years of talking to young people. Um, it was from a young woman in Ohio who said what the way in which you people, you know, our parents, think about bills, taxes, money, the way in which that weighs on you and your shoulders, that's the way we think about living and dying. Okay, so when we think about our tax bill or about recession, they think about living and dying. I probed more and um, they, uh, I heard not just from this one woman, but I heard it reflected in you know, dozens of other places that every time they go into a classroom, and I, I still think this is happening, even though this, might, this conversation might have been 2018, they have to case the room, see where the door is, Right. See, you know, see where the quickest entry exit point is um, and understand that they're not safe in a place where we always felt safe. When the generation that we're talking about came of age, think about this. They came of age, oh, born right around 9-11, you know, a couple of years before, a couple of years after. Um, so that's always kind of been in the background. But by the time they're, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, we have the Great Recession. 
which uh, means that um, 80% of, of families lost 20% of their wealth. Uh, tens of millions lost their homes. Um, and then um, as young people go to school, they're faced with red alert drills, lockdown drills, and school shootings, right? So there's this never been this period of time where our society has helped them kind of feel safe. They get a little bit older and they're beginning to see, you know, the horrible effects of opioid um, uh, crisis. I, I remember one Sunday, not that long ago, um, our family, members of our family attended two separate funerals for opioid, opioid um, deaths, one of a high school student and one of a parent. Same death, two different deaths in one of the most, probably one of the wealthiest communities in America where we live outside of Boston, right? You cannot hide from it anywhere. Imagine dealing with that as a 13 or 14 or, or 15 year old, right? Um, and then we talked about the kind of the, the political chaos that ensued, you know, uh, gun violence, climate change, uh, the racism that we talked about. So all these things are happening without ever taking an opportunity to step back and feel good about where we are as, as members of a community or a country, like every other generation has had. I'm not saying that no generate that, that this generation has necessarily had it tougher. What I'm saying is they've had as tough, if not tougher than any other generation living today without seeing the opportunity and the hope that can happen um, when we all kind of band together like the rest of us have. They haven't had that unique opportunity to come together yet and celebrate themselves in the country as one. And just the litany of things that you went through, that they lived through before they were even of age. I know my kids are right on that cusp between millennial and Gen Z. And one day my younger daughter, she ran off a list like that. She's like, before I even turned 18, mom, she started with 9-11 because my girls remember seeing that on the TV. They were very young, like preschool age. But me not knowing what I know now about human neurology and everything, like everyone else, I let it, I had the news running. So they kept seeing these towers going over and over and they didn't understand it. But to this day, what they know is how upset I was. So they remember this visual on the TV and they remember me being not normal. So they start with that. And then she listed off all these different things that happened before she even turned 18. And, and you hit on something very interesting there. It's about their safety. They don't have a safe space. They don't feel like they have a safe space. They don't, which is why, you know, uh, a majority, 52%, and, and we've done two, two surveys with the same questions in the last year at, at the Kennedy School's Institute of Politics at Harvard, where we ask, you know, a series of diagnostic questions. And one of which is we found that a majority, 52% of 18 to 29 year olds, and it's at least that many among the Gen Z cohort, the younger cohort, said that several times in the last two weeks, several times, um, more than once or twice, they had feelings of hopelessness, despair, depression, a majority. Um, and there were not significant differences based upon level of education or, you know, uh, gender or, or race or ethnicity. There are some minor differences, but not... If this is not a, a, a population, this is not an issue that only one part of the popula population is dealing with, it is everybody. And more concerning, 
is that half of that number, 25%, indicate several times the last several weeks that they it was so bad they had thoughts of self-harm or suicide. 6% every single day, every single day. So this is the, you know, the, uh, the epidemic, frankly, that um, we, I think, need to be talking about. And unless we're comfortable talking about the public pressures, they're adding to these personal pressures, I'm not sure we'll be able to make significant progress. All right, so as a parent, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to you know distill this down and go, so I need to understand my kids are scared. They don't feel safe. And I'm also seeing that they don't have probably the tools to help them manage what's right. happening, manage stress and anxiety. I know we, as a culture, I, I'm a stress relief coach and a meditation instructor. And I can, so I can look around and just look at our culture and how many things we have that actually do the opposite of what we want in terms of calming our body and our nervous system. Right. So as a parent one, just recognizing that understanding it, instead of putting labels on it, uh, you know, we often hear, oh, these kids, you know, they're, these kids are, are lazy and they're entitled and they're just so sensitive. When you talk to kids, are you seeing that, that they're lazy, entitled and, and overly sensitive, or are you seeing something else? Um, well, I think they're empathetic. I'm not sure, you know, I, I assume having empathy means that you're sensitive, um, but what they're sensitive about is injustice. And I'll never forget, and I, and I talk about this in the, in the book, I was in, uh, rather than doing focus groups uh, of like, you know, six, eight, 10 people, but um, I found during this time period where I was discovering kind of these issues that I, I was able to have much more fruitful conversations with larger groups you know, 20, 25, 30, and even much larger than that if I'm in a structured environment on a, in a high school or a campus. And uh, I'll never forget, there's this, this 16-year-old African-American boy from, um, from Inglewood, California. And he was so shy and introverted that he asked if he could sit next to me in my discussion group because he wasn't that kind of comfortable in a bigger group. And it got to the point of the conversation 45 minutes in where I said, has anybody had any difficult conversations you can share? He didn't even first raise his hand. I said, tell me about it. He goes, well, I was at lunch. You know, um, he's, he's, he's bossed out to an all mostly white school, mostly white school in uh, Culver City. And he talked about how he was at the lunch table and um, there were some of his friends who were white and were looking out the window and there was a African-American boy with special needs under a tree listening to music. And the boys were talking about how it looked like, because um, look at the monkey under the tree, look at the ape under the tree. And, uh, and they were, were talking about him under a tree and, and making these jokes. And then they noticed that this boy under the tree also had headphones on. And they were making jokes about how that could have been a noose. Under a tree, African-American with a noose. And I said, oh my, Moses. I said, what did you do? What did you say? He goes, well, I confronted them. Okay. So this is a young person who was so afraid to talk and share his feelings with the rest of the people in the focus group. He had to sit next to me, had no problem confronting these white kids who were overtly racist. 
you know, and he says, you don't understand. You're not very sensitive. You know, this is how it sounds to me, these jokes, you know, and please stop. And uh, I said, well, what do they say? And uh, he said, well, they said, why are you making this about race? Okay. So when I think about being sensitive, you know, that's the sensitivity and frankly, the toughness that so many members of this generation have instilled in them, right? That boy Moses talked about, he was growing, he, he, he was, he, his parents, he said, were older and older, they grew up in the 60s and they said, kids should be seen, not heard. He says, but my generation, we need to use our voice, you know? And he felt empowered, empowered by the activists, you know, from Parkland and the activists, you know, on climate to do those sorts of things. So yeah, people can talk about sensitivity and this, that, and the other thing, but it's a toughness and it's an empathy that um, I'm just so excited that they have. And rather than snowflakes, I think a more apt analogy is basically kind of a, a raw piece of coal that's hardened over time and has the ability to become like a diamond, right? And to stand out. That's what that young boy was to me and so many others that I've met along the way. Well, in this conversation, I hear this too. Like everybody thinks they're a special snowflake and in these, I think some of the changes that our kids are asking us to create, we make those comments because we don't want to have to change. We don't see why things need to change. And so maybe that's part of our conversation with our kids too, right? Is what do you guys see? Why do you think that needs to change? Why do we need to change language? Why, why do we need to do these things differently? It's worked fine for so long. Why doesn't this work now? And then we need to really listen to them. And when you, so when you talk to the kids, you said that you've heard this kind of toughness from them. You, you named your book fight because you're seeing that these kids are ready to go out and fight. So injustice is a big thing that they're ready to fight for. Are there other things that you see that are really motivating to this generation? Um, yeah, it's an excellent question. I think there are, in the book, I, I lay out what I think are five and perhaps now six fundamental events in the lives of, 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 of young people, you know, teenagers and, and 20 somethings that I think are really important to kind of, again, to set the kind of the context to have these kinds of, conversations and understanding you know the first of which is is the effect of the occupy wall street movement and although this wasn't a movement when this happened a decade ago 2011 this wasn't a movement where a lot of gen zers participated um the founders of this movement were actually members of the silent generation and they said it was a gift from the old to the young but what it did was it it kind of crystallized the idea of um of economic opportunity or the lack thereof uh, in this nation because based upon the, the divides and the, the, and the significant income inequality that existed. Um, and that was the, big, the first prism for which they thought about uh, politics and, um, and their own selves and, um, and, and potential professions, et cetera. So that movement, incredibly important, obviously mainstreamed by, by Bernie Sanders, AOC and others. Elizabeth Warren won. The second thing is, and we've talked about just the, the, the whiplash between the calm assuredness of Obama and the chaos that, um, that Trump sowed too. The third of which, of course, is the Parkland movement. Again, tapping into the sense of, 
of insecurity, but also really kind of empowering a generation to stand up and try to do things for themselves, right? Because um, members of Congress and so many others um, have uh, have basically let them down and not um, and not really kind of voted um, uh, in the in the best interest of their community. That's the third. The the fourth, really on the heels of the Parkland movement, is the climate strike. And, and Greta Thunberg was just a middle schooler when she read about the kids from Parkland and used those tactics to jumpstart her campaign, um, which has been incredibly effective on a global basis to bring attention to the um, concerns about climate for, and then the fifth one is, is, you know, is the, is the conversation about, about systemic racism and, and racial justice began uh, for many years through a lot of the work of Black Lives Matter, but really, I think, uh, uh, created a tipping point when Darnella Frazier, a young 17-year-old high school student, took a walk on Memorial Day of 2020 and used her cell phone to record, you know, almost 10 minutes of the murder of George Floyd. And without her uh, bravery and strength to film that, I'm not sure we know who George Floyd is today, because the year before, 14 people in Minnesota were killed by police. The year before that, 13 were, and we don't know any of those names, you know? So um, I think those uh, are the five events, and by the way, and that's all that before even COVID, right? Before we even um, have had to fully understand, which we don't yet, but begin to understand the consequences of, of uh, missed school, missed social opportunities, lockdowns, et cetera, related to COVID. So these are five, five events that have motivated Gen Z. Do you, do you see them being motivated enough to take, these are huge challenges and these are the challenges of the future. Do you see them really taking these on and changing the world and what might the world look like once they have the reins? Yeah. So again, as a pollster, there are a few different ways that I can measure these things, right? One of which is I can measure attitudes, which I do. And we see significant attitudinal shifts over the time period that we're talking about over the last four or five years in terms of the efficacy of kind of engaging in, uh, in the, in the public space. So I've seen significant changes in attitude, unlike any period I've seen since 9-11. I saw a 15 point shift before and after 9-11 among millennials. And then we saw a similar one with Gen Z um, before and after Trump's election, essentially. That's one way in which we measure it. Um, that's very, very predictive of the other behaviors. And then we've seen in 2018 and 2020, when this young cohort had the opportunity to actually do something at the ballot box, they did something that millennials, Gen Xers, and baby boomers never did. They doubled the average turnout rate in the midterm elections of 2018, um, doubled it. And then in 2020, when you have uh, Joe Biden, who was in his mid to late 70s, right, in 2020, not exactly, was not the most exactly appealing candidate in the primaries, you had the first time in history, a majority of young people turn out to vote. Uh, more young people turned out in 2020 for Biden than turned out in 2018 for Barack Obama. So those are two ways in which I can see them 
kind of using kind of their voice in in trying to to change things. Um, and then I think they're also using their their you know their kind of their pocketbooks and their time. And when you add in right how they think about spending their money, how they think about spending their time, and how they vote, when you think about those three those three factors, I think it has like just um, you know, kind of tremendous uh, impact in terms of how I think about the future. So in 2050, when our kids are essentially, you know, close to our age or around our age, and they are hosting podcasts and running companies and those sorts of things, it's gonna be a very different world, right? It's an impact the way in which we work um, because most every single company is going to have to prove of itself uh, as a company that has uh, kind of a connectedness to the community and to some uh, social good, I think that's going to be increasingly kind of in, in, important. I know there's um, you know uh, more than one CEO who cares now, you know, as much about how their products are made as compared to what the actual products are. So we'll just kind of continue. We'll continue to see that one. I think the other thing where we'll see a significant change is, is how we eat, really. This is a first plant forward generation. It's obviously uh, uh, complicated between health and wellness and the connectedness to the climate. But I predict we'll see kind of a, a renaissance, an agricultural renaissance in this country and also kind of around the world with less reliance on, um, on, traditional, on traditional meat. Um, and food, and then um, and opportunities for folks to um, you know kind of grow and invest in local you know agriculture. Second, and then third, perhaps most impactful is I think they're going to be changing the ways in which they think about success. It's going to be less about the way in which our generation um, you know thought about the American dream, about how much stuff you can get, and it's going to be more about the bonds that you make. Right and and the depth of your friendships and your community and those sorts of things. So, um, I mean, there are many many other things. I have I think ten predictions in the final chapter of this of this book, but I really um, was driven to these predictions based upon the value the five the values that we talked about that are that they're uh, they're evolving into kind of right now as young people and how that might be charted out you know 10, 20, 30 years from now. And just having this, even this cursory understanding of how this generation tends to think. And obviously they're different kids. They're, they're going to have their own individual ideas. However, as a group, to realize that what we think is important may not be important to them. And to talk to them about, well, what is important to you? And how do you see the world? And what kind of changes do you want to make? And then also on the other side of that coin, having those conversations about, do they feel safe? Are they fearful? What are they afraid of? And then helping them to see that they do have power, that they have control, because that helps to alleviate the fear, that helps to calm their body. When we feel safe, our bodies function neurologically, stably, and we calm everything, right? So I think that this is incredibly helpful to know. And little aside, real quick before we wrap up here, John, has doing this work impacted your relationships with your kids? Has it changed the way that you interact with them or parent them? <laughs> um, 
That's a great question. I think so. Yes, I, I, I absolutely think so. So I have three. My youngest just graduated from from college. Um, she's uh, has a great job, but unfortunately, she's upstairs in her bedroom right now. You know, because her job is she works at a company with a couple hundred folks, but her job is remote. She hasn't met the other people of her on her team. She hasn't been able to make connections to find an apartment where she wants to live. So, you know, uh, I can see the frustration every day. I have um, another uh, a daughter who taught um, uh, in Memphis public schools for three years. And I could see through her eyes um, the stress and anxiety that she was feeling for her students. She's now in law school and, and you know, that's not an option if we can't help support her just because of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it takes. So I can see that aspect of it. And by the way, I can also see how the changing nature of cities is affecting her public safety, right? You know, with the increasing levels of gun violence and other kind of stressor. Um, and my son, who is 27, so again, he's around the cusp of millennial and Gen, and Gen Z. He was in first grade on 9-11. He's a comedian. Who, who, who tries to, I think, you know, uh, find audiences every day to kind of express, you know, himself, you know, and maybe for his own wellness as well as for the benefits of his audiences. So, yeah, I, I think I definitely have a greater appreciation for all the different paths that they, they take, um, but it's always, obviously, it's always a challenge, whatever situation that we're it is. in. Right? But listening to you today, it's, I've noticed some things and you talk about how Gen Z will change the world. And I already see some of the things my daughter has changed how we buy in our house, just because she's sharing her ideas and her thoughts and we listen. And sometimes she yells at us and <laughs> we, or I shouldn't say yells, she reprimands us and she listens. And I don't know if she really listens and takes it in, but she'll stand there long enough to hear the words when I explain my choice and, you know, the reason I made the choice in that moment. Um, and, and, and it creates that space for dialogue and that's important. That's important in our parenting. It's important for connecting with our kids and that also builds relationship, which helps them feel safer, which is a, obviously a big issue with this generation. Absolutely. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. We will, of course, put a link to your book in the show notes. For anyone who's interested in the work that you're doing and wants to learn more about it, where can they do that? I now have a new website, which is johndelavolpe.com, which has uh, links to the book. And I'm going to be adding additional kind of resources and conversations that we're having and research all of the research that I do at Harvard is publicly available. That is on the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics website. So um, that's a collaboration with students. So a lot of the mental health statistics that, that I talked about is available um, there um, as well. Well, thank you for taking time to talk to us about this today. It's so interesting. I really appreciate your insights and all the sharing that you've done. Thanks so much for having me, Sandy. It was a pleasure. And thank you, Mighty Parents, for being here, for being part of the Mighty Parenting community. 
I appreciate you so much. I love to hear from you, hear what you're looking for, hear what's happening in your world. So thank you for your emails and your messages through social media and all your outreach. And remember, if you're here, if you're listening, you are a mighty parent. You got this. And I will see you next week. Mighty Parents, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. If you're ready for more, visit MightyParenting.com where you can get your free email series, How to Talk to Your Teen, with tips for communicating with your teen in a way that builds connection and communication. And of course, remember to share the podcast with another parent to support them on their parenting journey.